Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, along for the ride today are David Emmett of Moto Matters, Neil Morrison of Crash.net, and World Superbike commentator Steve English. I'm Scott Jones of PhotoGP. Today we're going to be talking about the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, a remarkable race with lots of things to discuss. David, how would you like to start us off? Uh, how would I like to start us off? I think there's only one way you can start us off, and that's to talk about Maverick Vinales winning a dry race, Suzuki winning a dry race, um, and doing so in extraordinary style. Uh, I really think that's this certainly it was the, the the highlight for me. Um, we know it's been a long time coming. We know it, it was going to it was going to happen at some point. And the question was whether he could do it or not. Um, he certainly proved that he could do it. He led um, the uh, well. We had a a big big incident in the uh, 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 the first start. Um, Maverick led. I think more or less off the line there. Um, he recovered himself and led off the line. Oh, well, uh, he were, took the lead on the first lap after a few corners um, uh, on the restart and basically just, you know, disappeared. Uh, not quite Lorenzo-esque, but, um, you know, led comfortably, wasn't challenged by, uh, by anyone. So it was um, uh, just... A really amazing achievement, really, uh, and a well-deserved and well, uh, I think, well appreciated. Everyone uh, in the paddock uh, is pretty big on Maverick. Um, he's well regarded. He's a nice lad, and yeah, I'm also for Suzuki. Just, I mean, it, it, to see them come back and succeed so well so quickly, that is really quite uh, quite remarkable. Yeah, it was remarkable as well because. Um you know, I think in the last maybe four MotoGP race weekends, there's been points where you've thought, is this going to be the time when Maverick steps up, when Maverick comes to the fore? Uh, his pace in Fridays, um, you know, in Germany and then the, the, in Brno and also in, in Austria, you know, was really impressive. And there was just always some doubt about whether he could do it in the race. Um, I was listening to Lorenzo's debrief on, I think it was on Saturday, and he was being asked about the potential challengers. And he, he was almost quite dismissive of Vinales, you know, he was saying that the Suzuki just in the second part of the race, when the tire kind of uh, drops off a little bit and there's not so much edge grip, that's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be someone to consider. Um, but Vignal has really, you know, won this race with the kind of style and confidence of, uh, you know, of an aged, aged pro, of a veteran. Um, there was one point, I think, he, you know, he really took his lead quickly up and beyond three seconds. And I think there was a point five or six laps into the race where Rossi, Crutchlow and Marquez had been scrapping behind him. And Rossi came from fourth to second in about one lap. And you really thought like, okay, this is going to be interesting now. This is going to be a real test for, for Finales because what if Rossi starts eking into that uh, eking into that lead and when his tire starts to drop, how is he going to deal with it? But, you know, ne never even came close to that. Um, Finales just kept it very smooth, very consistent. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that we've all been We've all known that he's, he's probably at the level to be able to win a race, um, you know, from the start of this year. But one way or another, it hasn't quite come together. But he did it in some style, as you said, David. Uh, it's a good point about battling behind because... Um Obviously, Valentino did at some point sort of take uh, uh, take second place and start the chase, but the trouble is, he didn't really get much of a chance to chase because there was so much going on behind them. Yeah, very true, very true. That was also, um, you know, I guess that was that was a big help for Maverick. You know, I think Alicia Espargaro, Maverick's teammate, said that um, you know, obviously the Suzuki is is fantastic through the fast changes of direction. He's able to hold a lot of corner speed, and that was really exemplified through the first sector of uh, of Silverstone, where you've got the fast turn one, which leads into the Maggot Spec. It's complex, and that's all about you know fast 
tyres change of direction and maintaining that speed. Um, and Espargaro said that he was he was getting held up through there, you know, by Lorenzo and whoever else he was battling with on track. Vinales didn't have that issue. But for me, what was what was so impressive was that you know we haven't always seen Maverick that strong at the start of the race, and in both occasions here, um, you know, the first starting and then the restart you know he was fantastic um he didn't get quite a good jump off the line in the second go but in that first lap i think he outbreak i think he outbreak rossi and desto and then it was down past the new start and finish the new pit complex into the fast right at the end of there he outbreak crutchlow and he was just you know on the brakes he said that he, he, he just had that confidence that we haven't always seen from him before in the past in the early laps and that was that was great to see and that was really impressive yeah and for me that was that was the big thing that really impressed me neil obviously when you haven't been to a Grand Prix for a few months and you're trying to get back up to speed with what's been happening. Obviously, inside the paddock, it's different than what you see just from on TV and what you see from when you're talking to different people during the season. But just looking at Vinales, you could see a big change compared to last year. I remember talking to a lot of the riders about him last year and the one thing that all of them said was on those opening couple of laps, he was always you know, very, very restrained, very much riding within himself, not really trying to be too aggressive. And then at Silverstone, we saw there was an opportunity presenting itself and he made sure that he put his bike where it needed to. And that's where you see that growing sense of maturity from someone like Maverick. I think he probably would have felt in himself that he was capable of winning races, maybe even this time last year. But the bike wasn't there and different circumstances were working against him. But uh, when the opportunity came up, he was up for the task and he was willing to put his bike where it needed to be take the risks in those early laps, try and open a gap. And then with uh, Rossi and Marquez fighting behind the Anone, that scrap, it was that perfect storm where he was able just to break away. It was quite reminiscent of what we saw at times in even Moto3 last year where you had Danny Kent taking big uh, big winning margins. It's because other guys were fighting with each other in behind and just getting in each other's way. And suddenly the, the gap just opened up and Vinales was just in the right place, right time, and riding perfectly, and that's what allowed him to to get that gap. I think the riding perfectly is a good phrase because you know lots of times when well maybe not lots of times but before we have seen races won by people we wouldn't expect to be race winners, and we say well this happened or that happened. There were sort of extenuating circumstances that lined up that made at the right time for that rider to win a race, but watching it trackside. It looked to me like Vinales was just perfect the whole race. He did everything that he had to do to win that race. And, you know, it wasn't a case where other people fell off to, you know, make a spot open on the podium for him to claim. He just went to the front and was faster than everybody else and claimed the race. I thought it was fantastic to watch that. Yeah, absolutely. And David, you spoke to David Abrivio after the race, and that's one of the things that he pointed out. He said it was, a, I think the words he used were, it was a clean win um, in that, you know, it was dry conditions, um, there was no wet weather, um, and everybody, I know Ian only eventually crashed, but, um, you know, all of the top guys more or less were there. Um, you know, it wasn't as if this, this one was gifted to, to Suzuki in any way, in any shape or form. Um, but I guess you could say that conditions over the weekend did you know, track conditions and the weather did in some ways uh, play into their hands. Yeah, exactly. That's just what I was going to say because uh, in the press conference, uh, um, uh, Vinales said something along the lines, well, uh, you know, fortunately it was cold and so we could win. And uh, after the press conference, uh, a small group of us spoke to him and I asked him, um, 
were you joking? Were you joking saying that you um, uh, that it, you only won because it was cold? And he said, no, 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 no. That's exactly why we won. Um, they, it was, I mean, actually, by the time the race came around, it, it wasn't too bad, but it was still fairly cool. Um, uh, it had been cold all weekend. We lost all of um, uh, certainly Saturday afternoon uh, terrain, and especially FP4. I think that could have been, uh, quite important because FP4 is the session where everyone uh, tries the tyres, gives the tyres a long run, uh, uh, checks which one is going to last and which one is going to perform best. Um, and then it was mm, well, not really raining, but just a bit miserable during uh, during warm up. So it wasn't really it was you know wasn't really dry. Couldn't really get an idea. Couldn't really test anything there. So we went into the race with. Um, uh, a lot of setup work not having been done, um, and certainly Suzuki, they did that best. I mean, they were just uh, prepared. But then uh, Maverick called himself the King of Friday. Um, uh, uh, well, on Friday afternoon, he says, "Yeah, well, we're, 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 we're the kings of Friday because they're always he's always fast, sort of out, uh, straight off the bat." The difference is he was sort of you know the king of Sunday as well. Yeah, and I think that's probably the most important thing, David. Is just we lost a full day of dry weather running, and like you always say, FP4 is your favorite session of the weekend because it is that session where you're able to see exactly what teams are expecting for the race, and you use that to basically define what you think is going to happen on on Sunday. And uh, whenever you lose. All that dry weather running, it basically means that teams are taking a gamble on setup on Sunday on the race. And that's where, you know, we saw Lorenzo after the race saying that, uh, they went, uh, they went stiffer in the race, hoping it would work, but because they had missed out on so much running on Saturday, they weren't really sure, reacted badly over the bumps, and suddenly they were nowhere on Sunday. And that's what can easily happen. And with the Suzuki having been such a, a good bike that's able to get into that base setting and be able to get into a manageable window, Obviously, for Vinales, that's translated, as you said, uh, the champion on Friday. But uh, this weekend, just m- missing out on that dry weather running also played into their hands for being able to have the bike as they needed it on Sunday. Yeah, and, you know, you, you talked about Lorenzo making that gamble. You know, Rossi also said that, um, well, in fact, him and Marquez said that they were going into to Saturday night with, you know, with some ch- setup changes needing to be made. Um, you know, and then obviously they missed the, the morning warm-up there. So, you know, you probably had... You know, both movie star Yamaha's and Marquez obviously said he made the the gamble with the soft Michelin front, which he thought was a mistake in the end. Um, so I guess you you know, in, in what some respects you had those three guys all you know um, really suffering from from the lack of setup time. But you know, even still, um, I think Vinales would have been extremely hard to beat uh, across this race weekend. Um, I think it's also it's worth saying you know, looking at the. Um, you look at, at Silverstone and one of the things everyone was saying on Friday was just how bumpy it was and how bad it was um, for the bumps and trying to manage it over the bumps. I think that's one of the reasons why Andre Iannone ended up falling out of the race. He said, you know, it was he caught one of those bumps going into Brooklyn's and that was that was it over. Um, you know, and if you look back through the year, Vinales was pretty strong pace-wise at Brno, another place where they said that the surface was quite bad. Um, Argentina earlier in the year, he probably would have, well... He probably would have got second place had it not been for uh, you know for a late mistake, um, and we all know how bad the surface was there in Argentina. So, you know, I think it's um, yeah, definitely the Suzuki seems to work well in that sort of situation. Yeah, Scott, that was something I wanted to ask you because the Suzuki it just seems like such a smooth bike now. Um, uh, just the base of the bike is so very good. Is that when you're out there taking photographs? Is that something that you that you can really see that the bike is that much smoother than the rest, or is it not that visible? Um, 
I would love to be able to say, yeah, that's a great insight on your part. To, but to be <laughs> honest, looking through the camera lens, um, I'm focusing on other things than that. I, it's probably a missed opportunity on my part to look for those kind of details and see what I can observe about that. But basically, my routine is on the warm-up lap. I don't look for the camera. Wherever I am, I watch the bikes go around to get a sense of what order they're in so that I know who's at the front of the line and who's in the back and who's in the middle. And then also looking for what part of the corner something interesting is going on. That's where I'm going to photograph it. But once they get up to speed, when you might be able to notice that one bike is smoother through a bumpier section than another bike, I'm just looking through my tunnel vision. So sorry, I can't. Basically, you're too busy taking photographs to actually see what the bikes are doing. Much of the time, unless it's something really dramatic, like they're sliding around the corner. Yeah. Something my, my perception is that that's sort of a subtle thing of if one bike is going over some bumps a little more smoothly than another bike. That's not something that I would expect to notice when I'm looking through a long lens at it. Yeah, I think it is worth it is worth talking about just how um, uh, how much progress Suzuki have made, uh, how well they've done. The base the basis of the bike is very very strong. The basis of the bike was very good last year uh, when it had uh, well I don't know. Let's take a wild guess, probably twenty uh, twenty horsepower less, um, uh, no seamless gearbox. They were losing in especially in acceleration, basically off the line. Uh, I remember Barcelona last year where we you had two Suzuki on the front row and um, by the time they got into uh, turn one they were about sort of 10th or 12th um, a lot of that is down to the seamless gearbox um, this year they bought the seamless gearbox they bought more power the chassis is not radically different to what it was last year and I think Aleix um, Espargaro is still using a, a very very lightly modified version of the uh, of the chassis he ran, he ran last year um, and yet you know they've made huge steps forward. They're actually competitive. Uh, that well, they're they're obviously competitive. Um, Maverick won a race. Yeah, I mean Suzuki have done a fantastic job. Yeah, and I would just you know like to say that I think if you look throughout, you know we're, we're two thirds of the way through the season now. I've had twelve races, and I think pretty much at every point at one of those weekends, Maverick and Suzuki have shown that they can be competitive and that they could be potentially counted upon. Uh, are counted on as you know as potential podium finishers at, at some point. You know if things worked out in their in their favour. I think maybe you know Kota they were, they were in the top six. Maybe Hareth Maverick wasn't quite on the pace. But every you know you look at Magello, he had that you know he nearly got pole position. Then had the incident at the first on the first lap. He had an electronics issue and couldn't get off the line well. Um, then we you know it took them a while to get their their wet setup sorted and their electronics sorted for a wet setup and that really hindered them in in Germany and Aston where they'd been looking strong as well um you know so I think this is you know this has been coming in a sense it's not like a you know out of a bolt out of the blue it's uh you know it's it's you know it's been they've been working towards this and you, you can, you've kind of been able to see their progress it's really been there present all year yeah and I was down in Suzuki after the after the race just having a, a chat with some of the guys obviously it's the first time that they've won a race in a long time. So it was a case of just trying to uh, see exactly what the reaction was with everyone in there. And I thought that for a lot of people, there was that sense that this result has been coming. Possibly not for the actual win, but just for having such a strong, strong showing from the from the bike. And whether it's been wet or dry, the team have said that they've actually felt like they weren't that far away from having a strong result. And with the the changes that they made to the bike Dave you were mentioning them there things like the seamless gearbox going full seamless made a big difference to that bike and it allowed them 
to just get an awful lot more competitive last year the chassis was really good we saw strong performances but that's taking into account something like the softer tire that we we're able to use last year this year the change of electronics probably helped them more than it uh, more than it hurt other teams so that brought them a bit closer to the front in terms of what they're able to do with the electronics and then just having a rider like maverick is what makes the difference because um, like I was talking to Tom O'Kane, who's Aleish's bagger, was crew chief, and Tom said that as much as he rates Aleish, there is just that difference between him and a rider like Vinales. Aleish is able to get onto a bike, get to that limit, but someone like Vinales, just like what we've seen with Marquez time and time again, is just able to make that step and turn what could be a podium into a win, like we saw at Silverstone, or turn what could be a top five finish into a podium, and it's just you need to have a, a top class rider on your bike if you're a major manufacturer and that's what having someone like Vinales on the bike really does make a big difference yeah I mean you raise an interesting point about the electronics to me I think you're absolutely right I think Suzuki have been the manufacturer who have benefited most from the uh, from the new electronics just because they you know they have a very small race department and they can't they don't have the resources to uh, spend so much time developing the extremely advanced electronics which some of the other um, uh, some of the other factories had um, so what do we think about um, uh, well what do we think about the new rules well personally I think um, I think they've been great they have leveled the playing field from an, an electronics perspective and like to be honest the, the thing with it is any rule change, it's brought in, they, there can be talk about it being for cost cutting, there can be talks about uh, this is just a way to reduce overheads and different things for the teams. Money's going to be spent wherever teams have it. Suddenly, just by bringing in a spec ECU, it's not going to be a case of Honda or Yamaha are going to say, well, there's a million pound we don't need to spend anymore. It's going to be, there's a million pound we can spend in a different area. And I think that the change for the electronics was, for me, a change for the better. I think it brought everyone a little bit closer and it means that we're in a position where in the future we're able to maybe try and take some electronic aids, lower them, maybe increase them for different perspectives as well. And it does bring that level playing field uh, to the table. And I think it's been a big positive change. I think even whenever I went out to watch the bikes this weekend, I think compared to last year at Silverstone, bikes looked a little bit more difficult to ride. When you talk to engineers, it was a case of you can't quite have everything fine-tuned like you could last year but 90% of what you need is still there I think everyone made a, a big deal over the winter about you know Honda were losing a big portion of their advantage they've got that back now they figured out how to use these electronics they're smart engineers it just takes time to figure out and get everything back into the base window but for me those changes and the changes to Michelin tires have been really successful this year and, and it's hard not to look at it and say those changes have played a big role in seven different winners in a row, four new winners this year, and probably about as good a grid as we've ever seen in the Premier class. Yeah, I would uh, I would agree with what uh, with what you said there, Steve. Um, I think the rule changes have perhaps been a surprise in some respects because I felt that there might have been um, in the in the first part of the season at least um, it would have brought the satellite teams slightly closer to to the front. Um, you know, I was looking at Tech Three um, and Pramac really and what they were doing over the off season and thinking you know in the first couple of races that you know that the, the electronics would have would have brought them maybe you know given them chances of dry weather podiums here and there um so i think you know we know that obviously with this new electronic system it's obviously going to favor the factory teams because they've got more personnel to figure them out whereas the satellite guys have still only got one maybe two electronics people in the garage um but 
you know, on the other hand, it has really helped Ducati come forward and Suzuki come close to the front. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's been great. I think the last three races, um, you know, going into the race, there, there's genuinely been five guys that you, you look at and you think that they could potentially win a race today, you know, and those are, you know, guys from four different manufacturers with Finales, Ian Oney, the, the two factory Yamaha guys and then Marquez, um, you know, and, and that's, that, that's great. That is fantastic. That's the kind of variety that you want to see in the top class, um, top class of racing. Yeah, I, I think the spec electronics have um, helped even the or level the playing field between the factories, but mm. perhaps not so much for the uh, satellite riders. So I think it's made the uh, these brought the factories together, but it's uh, uh, put a bit more of a gap for the satellite riders. Now they will catch up with that over the next couple of years as everyone gets a little bit more experience from the uh, with the electronics and the knowledge with the electronics sort of uh, filters down. Um, I also think the Michelin, the switch to Michelin has had a massive, massive um, uh, effect. Not only because uh, we now have two tires which work when the bridge. Um, when we were racing Bridgestones last year, basically everyone was racing the same tyre. The difference between the two tyres, uh, well, well, you've usually got three fronts and two and two rears, um, which Michelin bring, and that they that, that's giving riders real uh, real options. They're all raceable, um, and so you can see a little bit of strategy. Um, that's uh, that to me, I think, has made a big difference, and also, again. It's a lack of data. It, it it always racing is always helped when teams don't have very much data because they you know have to take a bit of a stab of it, stab at it, and that can make it uh, a lot more a lot more interesting and a lot more a lot more exciting. Yeah, and just to play a bit of devil's advocate with you, Dave, do you think um, having that, uh, as you said, the, the bit of a difference between the satellite riders and the factory riders? Is that, a, is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? Personally, for me, I think that uh, there should be a difference between the satellite and the factory riders. Bring the machinery closer together by all means. Give them the opportunity. But at the end of the day, the, the best rider is still going to be on the factory bike. And that's probably the way it should be. Not not just the best rider, but also uh, the best uh, crew chief, the best mechanics, uh, the best data engineers, but especially the, uh, the, the data engineers. That's what makes the big difference. They can have sort of three or four people going over one rider's data where there might be one or two people going over the, the, the data of two to two in a, in a satellite team. That is a small matter of resources. But until um, uh, Hervé Poncherel or Lucio Cecchinello can, uh, you know, generate another a couple of million extra to uh, hire the people to do that. There's not a lot they can do that. I would like to see it all a little bit closer, but in the end, I mean, factories, as you said, factories are going to spend, uh, factories are going to spend their money and they're going to spend their money to win. That's why they're in there. The pressure on them to win is a lot, lot higher than it is for the, uh, for the satellite teams. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that the biggest difference is always just the brain power that's available to the satellite teams compared to the factory teams when you look at tech 12 over the last few years they've had machinery quite close they've had riders that were whether it's crutchlow whether it's smith or spagro they've all gotten opportunities with factory teams whether it's ducati or next year with uh, ktm for smith and spagro but there's just been that difference between what they're able to get out of the m1 and what the likes of rossi and uh, lorenzo are and that a lot of that comes down to just what you're able to do at a Grand Prix weekend and the changes you can make to the bike and just the brain power that's available to you. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll have more discussion of the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. (laughs) 
Hey guys, Jensen here. Just a quick message to make sure you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast. All right, now back to the show. And we're back to the Paddock Pass podcast talking about the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. Uh, before we left, we were discussing the narrowing differences between factories and satellite teams and the as it turns out, a satellite rider turned in a pretty remarkable performance to claim second place in this race. Uh, who wants to talk about Cal Crutchlow and what he accomplished? Yeah, I think that uh, we've seen over the course of the last few rounds just a, a big improvement from Crutchlow. I think you could look at it uh, the start of the season. There was talk that he was going to potentially be returning to World Superbikes. There was interest, certainly, from a lot of teams in that paddock. And uh, suddenly it, it seems exceptionally foolish that there was ever contemplation that uh, Crutchlow wouldn't be on the MotoGP grid for next year I think you know even you know it's easy to look at the Bruno race and take the win from that but if you look at Germany if you look at uh, potentially what we could have seen at Aston what we saw this weekend at Silverstone you're seeing a guy that's really at the top of his game and able to ride as, as probably better than we've ever seen him for my money Sunday's race was probably the best race we've ever seen from Crutchlow he was in a straight fight with Rossi and Marquez and Ian O'Ne and he came out on top of it. Yeah, I'd find it hard to disagree with that. Um, you know, Cal winning his first race in, you know, the circumstances which he did at Brno was something really special. But um, as you said, Steve, to be really in a proper toe-to-toe battle with Marquez and Rossi and to come out on top of them after giving as good as he got, you know, I think that's those are the words that he used in the press conference afterwards. Um, it was really it was really something else. Um, and, and, you know, and just the fact that it was such a difficult start to the year that it was five, you know, out of the first five races, I think he had one 11th place, four crashes. Um, the fact that he has pretty much turned his season around in the space of four races, you know, adds to that as well. Um, and you know, it's 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 been it's been great to see. Yeah, I, I think I definitely think this was his it's certainly the best I've ever seen him ride, and I think it was definitely his best race. Uh, I think this could possibly have been his first ever dry win if. Uh, Maverick hadn't gotten away and he'd been stuck in there. You've got to say, you know, he had a, just as good a chance as anyone to um, uh, to actually beat him. But um, um, he was clearly on a on a well. I mean, basically, he went with he he chose the right tire. He chose the hard front rather than the soft front, and that and that gave him the edge over Marquez. But the fact is, you have to be there. Uh, you have to be able to manage it, and he um, uh, he did that perfectly. It was. Um, fantastic to watch very very uh, uh, entertaining to watch um, and it spices things up uh, as well because we had um, uh, what well we, we had one factory rider at the front and then we had five um, uh, uh, five other riders from four different uh, no from three different manufacturers um, uh, all battling out behind him and I think that's it It really has spiced up the field and enriched the field as well we've got a a, a real depth of talent there yeah and i think just going back a little bit to to crutch though as well dave it's of all the places would you have expected this at silverstone you know the home grand prix has always been one that's been exceptionally difficult for crutch though whether it was crashes on the tech 12 that led to injuries or like last year he probably had the potential to to finish on the podium if it hadn't been for the crash with miller but it's always been a race where Maybe the occasion got a bit to him and it was just a bit more of a struggle than what you'd see otherwise from Crutchlow. Whereas this weekend, I was amazed at how relaxed he was the whole weekend because, like, obviously, as I said, I haven't been to a race since Coda and you come back into the paddock and you you pick up up on things that you probably would take for granted if when you're there week in, week out. But 
I was actually really surprised just to see how relaxed Crutchlow was the, the whole way through the weekend. I can explain that for you, Steve. He made a crucial decision not to have a special livery for his home Grand Prix. <laughs> Look what happened to Scott Redding. Look what happened to James Toslin back when he dressed himself as the red and white flag outfit. It seems like every time a British rider does something special with his helmet or his leathers at the British Grand Prix, that spells disaster. I was really relieved to see Cal show up in just his normal kit. Well, I'll tell you what, actually, Scott, just to just to uh, show how bad sometimes that can get whenever you go for a special set of leathers or anything like that. Last year, me and Tony did a photo shoot with Sam Lowe's during warm-up just for him getting himself ready. It was him just getting into his leathers for his home Grand Prix. Alex was down in the truck as well, and there was, like, Tony took some great photos. It was going to be a bit of a, it was going to be involved in, you know, special... British Grand Prix, home Grand Prix spread for MCN, and Sam went out in a wet session in a brand new set of leathers. I think they were Union Jack leathers, and he went out and he binned it on a second lap or something like that. The leathers were ruined. He wasn't able to use them in the race. He went on to use his normal leathers, so we ended up, we didn't run that spread just because the, the pictures didn't tally in with what happened, you know, in the race and different things like that. But it just shows just the, the risk of going out there, new set of leathers. And as you said, Scott, it's very easy for uh, riders to look a, a little bit foolish whenever they, they try and do something different like that. And, you know, this weekend we saw it with Scott. We saw it time and time again in the past with different riders, whether they were Spanish riders at their home race, just putting on a, a new helmet and different things like that. For some reason, it is one of those things that very rarely works out unless you're Lorenzo dressed like an alien. <laughs> yeah, I, I would like to... Uh, I also think that there's um, something about the fact that um, Crutchlow has become a father. That seems to have changed him as well. Um, he all of a sudden um, he seems a lot more relaxed, a lot calmer. There's almost as if there's a bunch of pressure which has fallen from his shoulders, which is frankly is, has has surprised me. Um, you don't really expect that. They say that it makes you slower, but it look it really looks like it's made Crutchlow faster, just because he doesn't feel like he's got as much to prove, and he's going out and just racing, and that is the difference. Yeah, and I think we, we saw this in 2014 when he was having that really difficult season on Ducati. He judged conditions really, really well in Aragon in that flag-to-flag race and got a podium there. And really from that moment onwards, we just saw him riding, you know, almost, uh, you know, you just saw his level going up and up and up. And he had that, you know, he could have very nearly been on the podium again at Phillip Island that year. Um, I think here... He had that race in Germany where he felt he could have won it. And, you know, suddenly that confidence and that kind of swagger is uh, has returned. Um, I remember speaking to Lucio Cecchinello last year about this. And he was saying that Cal is just one of those riders that when he can sense that there is something there, you know, something that he can really get his teeth into, like a really good result, he can, he can sniff it out almost. Then you'll see that kind of, you know, that swagger return. He'll even, you know, he'll really focus on that, on getting, on getting um, you know, on achieving that result that he, he thinks he can get. Um and I think, you know, we've, we've seen that in the last couple of races we saw it in Brno, and then he just carries that confidence into, into Silverstone. And yeah, it's been, it's been really impressive to watch. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the things that's always been interesting about uh, Crutchlow is the, the paradox of perception from the outside and then what a lot of the insiders within teams say about him. Hervé Poncheral always said that Cal was probably the most sensitive rider that he ever worked with, a rider that really always needed... Uh, an arm around the shoulder needed encouragement needed uh, just to be to be 
shown that he was loved by a team. Obviously, when you talk to him about the Ducati situation, he never felt that. It was a case of Ian One was always the factory rider they wanted in the red bike, and Cal was just the, the rider that they happened to have on the bike that year. There was always a disconnect between what was happening in Bologna and what was happening at the track, and it was always that thing where Cal always felt like it wasn't really a situation that was ideal for him. He went to LCR, and again, we've seen with Cecanello and the rest of the team, it is very similar to what you have with Hervé, where it is a lot of encouragement for the rider. And I think, Dave, just like, as you said, a lot of times you, you did hear in the past where having a having a child made a rider lose a couple of tents and things like that, but having another person within Crutchlow's team probably brings out the best in him, and that's where having Willow now probably just makes him feel that there's an extra, like he, he makes the comment an awful lot about an extra mouth to feed and things like that, but there's another person there that that he has to love, another person that loves him, and that's what brings out the best in him. And a happy home is obviously translates for, for Crutch, though even more so than other riders. Yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of stability which has given him a, a, a real sense of, like I say, serenity. It's more, I mean, obviously motorcycle racing is, a, is, is entirely mental, um, it's a it's it, 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 it all it all pl- takes place in the mind uh, a lot of it is about confidence but it's not so much confidence that I'm seeing from uh, from Crutchlow as just a real sense of calmness and serenity and serenity is not normally a sort of something you associate with uh, with motorcycle races except there have been a few where you really notice it. They're just, the, it's almost as if they're sort of like walking on clouds. You know, they're, they're not really noticing the world. They get on, then they get on their motorcycle and, and go faster than anyone could possibly have conceived was possible. And I think that seems to be happening with, um, uh, certainly seems to be happening with Crutchlow at the moment. So I, I expect he'll have a, a pretty good race for the rest of the, uh, a pretty good, well, number of, number of races for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think it was interesting that he was uh, he was using a new chassis that HRC had asked him to use, uh, asked him to test over the weekend. Um, I think it was one that one of the the Repsol factory riders had used in Barcelona. Um, from what I heard, it was actually, it was it was the chassis that Pedroza raced in Barcelona, the third place. But then he felt that uh, he didn't want to to continue with it, and HRC felt there was some potential in there. And Danny just probably his best uh, performance of the season on that on that uh, frame and they, they give it to the crystal to test he um you know he wasn't really able to give much away on that we asked him on saturday we asked him on sunday you know where the where the benefits were and he was very coy very vague about um he said you know it helps in some places parts of the track and it didn't help in others so they'll reassess it again and, and go to Mizano so you know having you know that could have been something that uh, that may have helped him we're not too sure it's maybe too early to draw any conclusions from that yet and then I also just want to say about uh, you know I watched the race again last night um, when I got home from London and just watching Cal coming out of the first corner there were several occasions where he was on the run down to the Maggots Beckett's complex and he was just passing riders just through drive through sheer drive you know basically getting a better run um, and I'm not sure whether that was him with his electronics set up even better. It was just throttle control. But there was a, one occasion where he passed Marquez down in the run there and another when he did it on Rossi. And it was just, um, you know, we hear about, obviously we know Honda struggles with acceleration out of slow corners. Um, but on this occasion, it was just, um, you know, it was fantastic, you know, to see Crutzlow's throttle control and his ability to get that run on, you know, the best in the world um, at that part of the track. Yeah, and I think that was one thing that stood out to me whenever I went out to watch one of the sessions on Friday was through Woodcock, which is unbelievably fast and one of the most exciting places to, to stand during any season. Scott, like it's one, one of those places that all the photographers 
really enjoyed getting the inside of Wildcat just to have a look at uh, the bikes as they come through. But Cal was probably the most aggressive rider I've seen through there. There was a few times where you could see the back end of the bike just pumping away. I think there was one time in FP2 whenever he lost the front going through there. He was able just to to carry to carry things off and and get the still maintain his drive and I think we saw him make a really strong move on Rossi into there and then make a move into turn one straight after that and it was that case where there was a couple of corners where he clearly earmarked these are the important corners these are the ones that I can be really strong on and that set up potentially making overtaking moves further around the track and I think that through that section he really had his bike dialed in and that's the one thing that I think is easy to forget about Silverstone is that it's such a long track that it isn't ever going to be a case where you've got a perfect bike the whole way around. It is a bit of a compromise setup. You have to think in terms of there's fast corners, there's some heavy braking, there's also a lot of places where you have to keep on the side of the tyre for a very long time. And it is that case where you're not going to have a bike that works perfectly everywhere and it's just finding that right balance. And just quickly, just uh, one last thing to add about Crutchlow. That pole position lap was just something, you know, out of this world. Um, what we heard from the other Honda riders on Saturday in wet conditions was that it was taking them quite a lot of laps to get that rear tyre up to temperature. And Cal, I think, went out there in his first flying lap and posted the lap at that point three seconds faster than anyone. And eventually, I think Rossi got to within nine-tenths. Um, but for Crutchlow just to basically put it all in the line, you know, with the tyre probably not well maybe he had got it up to work optimum working temperature if so impressive that he did that um and just you know the sheer the sheer ballsiness um steve you and i were talking to peter Baum, uh danny kent's crew chief on saturday evening he worked with crutchlow back in 2009 when he won the, the world super sport championship and one thing that peter Baum said was that you know one thing about crutchlow was that he could have the biggest most terrifying crash that you could imagine and he would come into pit lane and he would basically you know have a minute to psych himself up in the garage get back on his spare bike and go out and you know set a faster time and he said, that's something you really have to admire in a rider. He doesn't let things like that phase him. And, you know, I think we saw that on, on Saturday in the pole position time. He just went out, didn't even consider the fact that he might fall off, just uh, went for it. And it was it was definitely a lap to remember. Yeah, I was just going to mention that, Neil. It, it, like, that chat to Peter Baum just really did show exactly what uh, Crutchlow has always been about. It is just a case of always being able just to, his back's against the wall and then just come out swinging if possible. And, that pole lap was just something unbelievable. I don't think that we, we've seen anything quite like that. The conditions, being what they were, made it exceptionally easy for a rider to make a mistake. And uh, Crutch, though, was just willing to put it all on the line and uh, you know thoroughly deserved a home pole for it. And uh, I think that uh, when you look at like the lift that that must have given him as well, just to be able to, to start the race from pole, we saw him have that fight with, with Rossi and Marquez and Ian One, but uh, really came out strong and uh, came out on top in that fight but I think uh, it'd be impossible to look at that fight and not think uh, think back to what we saw last year as well between Rossi and Marquez and this was another case where we saw two riders just unwilling to give up the track to each other and uh, definitely we I don't, I don't think any of us would have been surprised if there had been contact or if there had been some sort of an issue between the two of them but again it was clean fighting and just uh Two guys just unwilling to to see the corner to each other. Yeah, I mean, it was quite obvious from that battle that um, the handshake at Barcelona was a, a formality rather than uh, any actual rapprochement. It was uh, that the, they still 
completely hate hate each other and um, uh, really uh, it was almost like it became uh, again it looked like Sepang it became more important to beat the other rider rather for both of them to beat each other rather than to actually be competing in the um, uh, to actually be competing in the race Uh, there is real and genuine honour animosity I think I read a uh, Spanish uh, an interview with a with a Spanish uh, newspaper and he used the well Marquez was basically saying that he was he was glad that the relationship was cordial and professional now that's code for um, at least at least we can tolerate each other's presence uh, each other's presence but we still hate each other so it was um, yeah and that was obvious on the track and it was deeply deeply entertaining because both men were taking far more risks than they had any business to be doing just to just to stay in front and it made for a really entertaining um, uh, really entertaining race yeah and that's the thing Dave like I think uh, it's it's definitely a case of like we want to see the two boys at least shake hands that, uh, you know, you can sort of draw a line in the sand on Sepang. But far more important is that the two boys obviously hate each other. They obviously want to beat each other far more than they want to beat anyone else out on track. And we saw yet again just that inability to to think about winning races. It's just beating the other guy. In Sepang last year, they were more than willing, or Rossi at least, was more than willing to, to give up any chance of winning the Malaysian Grand Prix just to cost Marquez any chance of getting on the podium or any chance of fighting for the win. And we saw the same thing again at the weekend. Like, obviously, with Vinales having opened up a gap, it would have been very difficult to close that gap down. But there was no chance of them closing it down because they started fighting with each other. And I'm not saying that they slowed each other up all that much, but it takes all of their focus, all of their attention is just on beating the other guy. And that's exactly what what uh, what we need to see as well. Like, I think... Uh, Obviously, you never want to see a situation where there's there's outright, you know, hatred out in track and the brain just gets disengaged and there's a potential for an accident. But you want to see two riders just going balls to the wall and taking each other on. Like when you look back at the the footage of Schwanz and Rainey, you know, you see that and you see that 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 whole animosity between both riders. And that's what everyone remembers from the late 80s, early 90s is. I think Schwanz had a great quote about it one day where it's where if I was on pole, I the best thing about that was I knew Wayne wasn't going to sleep that night. And you definitely get the same feeling between Rossi and Marquez now, where if one's beating the other, you know that until we get to Mizano, it's all that Mark's going to be thinking about. Yeah, and you know, Rossi was asked at the end of the at the end of the race in the press conference. Um, you know, Mark's lead now is has been whittled down to fifty. Well, I say whittled, but you know, it's now it was fifty three. It's now fifty. Um, Rossi was asked, you know, whether he still feels that the championship isn't, you know, it is too far, it's too big a disadvantage to overturn. And he basically said that he didn't care. You know, he said, you know, he's happy. You know, with with. His performances and essentially with the race on Sunday, you know, he was happy to come out on top of that duel. And it kind of gave you a little bit of perspective of, you know, maybe now he has he has given up some some real hope on, on securing the championship. And he thinks like, well, if I can continue fighting with and beating Marquez, um, you know, that in some sense is, is one kind of victory. And I was thinking back last night, you know, to when we last saw Mark outpaced Rossi in a race and I was thinking it was probably back in Austin because if you look I mean I think Mark was probably if it had been dry in Germany Mark would probably had the pace to you know to beat Rossi in the dry there um but in each race since then I think you could say that you know 
had circumstances worked in Rossi's favour, he, he could have beat Marquez in all of them. Um, you know, and I think that is maybe one reason why Mark, well, obviously, you know, there's there's that animosity that you guys have been talking about, but I also think Mark, you know, that, that is a kind of thing that would annoy him. That is a thing that he feels he needs to put right. And when he has someone like Rossi on the track and he thinks, hold on a second, I haven't really, I haven't really put one over in this guy in about three or four races now. You know, that's like uh, the proverbial red rag to a bull. Yeah, and I think uh, it, it's interesting that you mentioned Neil that you know there hasn't been a case where we've seen Marquez outpace Rossi since then, and it just shows how mature Mark has actually been this year. And suddenly you go to a situation where it's you know the tactician Marquez throughout this season, and just what we've seen from him in that transition to just uh, being willing to accept being off the pace in Austria and finishing in the top five, you know, and uh, suddenly. Once the opportunity presented itself at Silverstone, where he's racing wheel to wheel with Rossi, you could see the the mental approach changed from just what we've seen recently, where it's just like pick up points, pick up solid championship points, to suddenly, as you said, a red rag to the ball, and it's like get in front of this guy at all costs. Yeah, I think that uh, in part that could be the biggest threat to. Uh, well, there are two things which could be really big threats to Marquez's leading the championship because fifty races with uh, fifty, sorry, fifty points with seven races, uh, seven races to go, six races to go. Um, that's a really, really big ask. But um, being drawn into battles with Rossi, uh, obviously you saw him when he was fighting with Crutchlow. He made a mistake. He ran off at uh, um, he, uh, well, he ran off at Magnus and Baggins when he was fight- when he was fighting with Rossi. Uh, uh, rejoined. He made a big mistake um, uh, on the I think the final lap when he was soon. Um, but not to that lap. Yeah, uh, um, when he was uh, when he was fighting with uh, with Crutchlow and basically you know well, I think he lost sort of basically two places and got one back. Um, so the, he can be drawn into mistakes, which can be uh, which can be dangerous. But also, if you look, we've had seven winners in the last seven races. Um, we've had a lots of new riders uh, involved. We had lots of new names on the podium. Um, if Valentina, well, we're going to Mizana, where the Yamahas will do well, and where the Honda is likely to struggle because of the uh, because of the uh, basically the layout of the track and, it, uh, and and the lack of grip which the Honda still has out of slow corners. Um, all of a sudden, uh, Marquez could find himself losing. You know, he could find himself with uh, Rossi winning, Lorenzo second, uh, Iannone maybe uh, on the podium, Dovichosa maybe on the podium, uh, Vinales who. Who knows what what Vinales is going to do? And all of a sudden, he's got five, six riders in front of him, and that's uh, that, that. That's a great big. Um, that's that, that, that's a great big chunk of points. That. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, we've commended Mark for for his approach and his kind of change of philosophy and a lot of points this season. Um, but I think my favorite quote from the entire weekend was he was talking about qualifying, and he obviously crashed at turn one. It was almost a repeat crash of his of that yeah, of the one he had in the race in two thousand and fifteen. And he said, basically, he was explaining it and he said that he pitched in and he felt the rear coming round and then he, you know, rather than, you know, I think any other rider would just pick it up and you know, say, okay, well, that's that lap ruined. Uh, he decided just to pitch it in again and what do you know, the rear came round and threw him over the top and, you know, he landed <laughs> on his face and, you know, it's, it's, it is commendable that, he, you know, he has that commitment, you know, and just thinking, well, let's go for it. But it is that thing that's always there with Mark surely that's going to come and bite him at some point and so nearly did in Austria you know he dislocated his shoulder in that FP3 spill but you just there's always that kind of hanging that doubt hanging over hanging over him that he is that type of rider in qualifying and sometimes that could 
well, you, you imagine might come back in there and, and bite him. Yeah, my favourite quote from the weekend was um, uh, also from Mark uh, about choosing the wrong tyre, about choosing the uh, soft tyre in, in, instead of the hard. He said, um, I was with the elbows all the time trying to manage the front, which when you actually think about what that means, it, it's just completely insane. Um, uh, basically, you know, you're managing you're managing the grip on the front end by... by hot, Saving the saving the front not on your knee but on your elbow all the time, which is I don't know, otherworldly. Okay, let's take a break, and uh, when we get back, we'll talk about Moto Two. David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder: if you're listening to this show on iTunes. Please remember to leave us a review and rate us, as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay, welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're talking now about the Moto2 race. Neil, can you bring us up to speed on what happened there? Yeah, well, well basically we had... It was a three-way championship fight going into this weekend, and Sam Lowe's had made it perfectly clear that if he didn't win at Silverstone, he felt the championship would be beyond him. And eventually we saw, well, I mean, you can't really mention the, the, the race without first talking about uh, that collision basically between Johan Zarco and Sam Lowe's. I think it was four laps from the end of the race. Um, they had been involved in quite a tight fight um, for second at this point um, until until that moment and Thomas Ludi was just ahead of them and you felt that both both riders perhaps perhaps had the chance to, to reel in and uh, and take Ludi take the lead from him um, but what transpired was a very controversial move and it ended up with Lowe's well Zarko going up Lowe's inside um, taking Lowe's off him rejoining the track and Lowe's basically, you know, rejoined the track outside the top 25 and Zarko rejoined in seventh. I think he got sixth in the end, but race direction soon handed him a 30 second penalty, which meant he also finished outside the points. Um, and with Alex Rins riding, you know, what can only be classified as a, as a heroic race, really, uh, he managed to whittle Zarko's lead with him not scoring. With Zarko not scoring, Rins managed to whittle his lead down to 10 points. So there is still all to play for. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the move was, uh, shall we say, wildly optimistic. Uh, it didn't really have a chance, uh, uh, or Sarko didn't really have a chance of making that corner. Um, for some of the photos I've seen, it's, it's quite clear that he was uh, behind, um, he was not braking, uh, and certainly as soon as he made contact with um, uh, with Lowe's, he, because he seemed to get his, uh, he, he bent his, uh, brake guard up, and he caught his uh, he caught his brake, so he couldn't brake properly, and that was forcing uh, you know Lowe's had already turned into the corner. There was nothing that Sam Lowe's could do about it. Lowe's had already turned into the corner, and he'd completely lost the um, uh, lost any chance of that uh, of, of actually doing much about it. Zarco had dug a hole for himself by by well digging into the side of Sam Lowe's uh, couldn't brake properly couldn't control his bike properly and um he was lucky that Lowe's crashed because it allowed um uh, it allowed Zarco to get back on track 
uh, and complete the race. And I think uh, 30 seconds is, uh, because it happened with just a couple of laps to go, I think a 30-second penalty is is entirely appropriate because that was clearly a ride-through. That, that was clearly deserving of a ride-through. Yeah, and I think for me, one of the key things is, is when you look at an incident like that, it sort of showcases again just how special someone like Mark Marquez is because how often do you see Mark going down the inside like that, realising he's not going to make the turn, let go of the brake and then push himself out through the corner, doesn't take out anyone else, loses a little bit of time but comes back straight in to be able to fight and try and make you know a, a repass then at the next couple of corners. And Zarco, on the other hand, came in on an, on an incredibly tight line. There was no way he was ever going to get that bike stopped and make a make an overtaking move, but he clearly had it in his head that he was going to just force the bike down, make a block pass, and try and uh, run lows out wide. And uh, th- it was a move that was never going to make, never going to be made successful. And he should have just been able to seed the corner, live to fight another day, and instead you end up with a situation where he takes out lows with only uh, you know three three laps to go. And that's where the the thirty second penalty is perfectly legitimate because it was it was a clear ride through penalty if uh, this had to happen halfway through the race. Fair enough on the last lap to try and move like that. I think we've seen time and time again that Mike Webb is a lot more lenient on the last lap than he is with you know a handful of laps to go. This was a move where I think a, a ride through penalty was the the fairest thing to do for. Uh, for what had actually happened and with it being so late in the race the 30 second penalty is the the only real option that race direction have available to them yeah i just thought it was strange as well because it wasn't as though it wasn't as if lowe's was yes yeah, so zarko came into this race with 44 points in hand over lowe's um and you know he was going to finish ahead of alex rins and, and extend his championship lead to an extent you know if he lost five points to lowe's was it going to be a total disaster if he lost nine points to lowe's was it going to be a total disaster i don't think so um, and speaking to sam after the race one of the things that really annoyed him was zarko had said i think it was to the, the moto gp website on saturday he was quite combative in his uh his post-qualifying interview you know and he was basically saying that he wasn't going to take anything he was going to go all out to try and you know put one over Lowe's on uh, on home soil and you know that doesn't really look so good when you make a move like he did uh, on in Sunday's race yeah I mean it didn't as you say Neil it made absolutely no sense that he would be focusing on um, uh, on Lowe's when he was gaining points on his most ri- on on his biggest rival you know he, his championship lead over over Rince went from 19 to uh, to 10 points and uh, he would have extended if he finished behind Lowe's um, he would have uh, basically extended his championship uh, lead over over rinse and only given away a handful of points to uh, to, to, uh, to Sam Lowe's. So it, it 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 really made no sense whatsoever to 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 risk something like that or even to focus on uh, on Lowe's. Yeah, and it, I think uh, it it didn't make sense at all. I think no one's going to be able to see a justification in uh, in what was going on with Zarko's head at that time. I think it was a case of he sees that this could have been the opportunity just to put an end to Lowe's title chances, and that's what it was. Um, This race was clearly a race where Lowe's had to come through and win, because if he doesn't, suddenly you're into that, that uh, you know, six races left, and that's 44 points now. It's, it is an exceptionally difficult uh, path for him to even think about being a title contender. It's that That's probably gone now at this stage. And I think that uh, if you look at the season that Lowe's has had, it, it is one of those years where, you know, this incident 
the red flag at uh, Mugello, the jump start in Qatar, the change of the track in Catalonia. They're all different circumstances that seem to have played against the title uh, title charge firm. And this is the the latest uh, the latest one of those. And this was probably the one that uh, definitely seemed to probably get to him most because he you know he had ridden a, a good race, he had ridden a controlled race, and then suddenly something like this happens. But I think that for Zarco, you know, I think he's probably looking at it with, you know, six, seven rounds to go. I want to be able to focus all my attention on one rider. And that's why it was so important for him to get through on lows and try and open up, you know, the best part of a 50 point lead over him and really make sure where, you know, the title is just coming down to Zarco and Rin. So I think he probably came, he probably went into the, uh, the end of that race just with that in his mind with Rin's having a, a fractured collarbone. This was the race where he could make a big step forward and uh, almost put uh, put a hand on the championship trophy. And instead, the instant just means that uh, we'll go to Mizano and uh, you know there's probably a, a different uh, complexion on the championship just with Rinso so close now. Yeah, I mean the, the person I feel uh, well, I mean well the person you feel sorriest for is is Sam Lowe's because he had absolutely no part in that. And uh, as far as that's concerned, uh, basically giving uh, Zarco a thirty second penalty um, uh, puts him out of the points and is uh, and uh, perhaps the most just uh, uh, the most just punishment for that. Um, but the, you almost feel sorry for Tom Lutie for because you know he rode a very very solid race um, easily deserved the uh, easily deserved the win even though if Sarko and uh, uh, and Lowe's don't fall off then it would have been a much much tougher ask um, but yet no, no one's talking about Tom Lutie's uh, uh, Tom Lutie's win because we're all focused on uh, Zarko's moment of madness yeah and that's that's just an unfortunate byproduct really is you know, you focus on what's probably the bigger story in the the global scheme as a British rider in his home Grand Prix having an incident like this and t- being taken out of championship contention, pretty much. And I think that uh, what was interesting for me was after the race, I went down to talk to Zarco, and like the uh, the mentality that he brought to it was that he hadn't done anything wrong, that this was a very harsh penalty, but that you've got to roll with the punches and just move on from it, and. Uh, you know, I think it it harked back to Zarco from a few years ago, rather than the Zarco that we've seen for the last eighteen months. If you remember back to like whenever he was a, a one two five title contender, it was him and Terrell. We saw lots of flashes where, you know, the red mist came down and he made decisions that uh, were foolish in the in the long run. And this looked like another one of those incidents. Whereas last year he looked so controlled, so composed, and for most of the season it's been the same. Yeah, yeah I mean perhaps. He's starting to get a little bit nervous because of, um, uh, I mean, Bruno, he had a bad race. He's He's been, he's either been absolutely stunning or he's been, you know. Shaky. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little bit shaky, a little bit, um, uh, yeah, almost unreliable. You, you you really don't know, almost almost mediocre. You really don't know what you're going to get with him uh, 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 at the moment. So uh, I don't think he's as confident as he, uh, uh, as he was after well two or three races ago and i think that's really uh, that's affecting his decision making perhaps yeah after austria after his race in austria and then you know qualifying on pole at berno i mean it's really it was at that point it was unforeseeable to think that uh coming away from the uk rins would have closed within 10 points of his championship uh you know would have yeah in the championship would have been closed 
right down to this amount. Um, and yeah, it's just going to be very interesting to see how he reacts. Because if you look back to last year, um, once he had won the championship, there were one or two races where he was a wee bit off off colour. Um, Australia, I think, and, and Valencia spring to mind. You know, he just had fairly anonymous weekends. So, yeah, interesting. All to play for. Yeah, and also he really risks um, uh, making life difficult. Zarko's risked making life difficult for himself because uh, Samuel Oates was very clear. He now said, I really hope that uh, that Rince wins the championship and Zarko doesn't win it. Um, so you've got to think that if Sam is in a situation where um, uh, he can interfere by you know trying to finish in front of uh, uh, of, of Zarko, then he's, he's going to do whatever it takes to to do that so um, I think it's always very very dangerous to um, uh, annoy your title rivals because they yeah all of a sudden it, it presents them with a new goal and I, I think that's definitely going to happen at, uh, for, for Sam Lowe's Speaking of title rivals David uh, in the Moto3 race Brad Binder put more distance between himself and his rivals with a fantastic ride. And uh, it was a good day for his team because former Red Bull rookie Bo Ben Snyder joined him on the podium, just uh, proving how good the uh, training in the Spanish and Italian national championships coupled with the Red Bull rookies uh, can be for moving from those series into Moto3 at the Grand Prix level. Yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic race. It always is, um, um, especially at tracks like Silverstone where you can't really uh, get away from, uh, yeah, well, you can't really get away from people because it, it's so fast, you've got long straights, and uh, especially at Silverstone, it was so windy uh, that uh, as soon as you got into the leads, then you were basically being blasted backwards and everyone else was catching uh, catching up with you. Um, what impressed me most about Binder's win was the fact that the KTM, I spoke to him on Saturday night, and he said, you know, we're really struggling over the bumps. That's the... the the KTM chassis seems to be a little bit stiffer than the uh, than either the Honda or the Mahindra, and that is it, it can cause them problems when uh, in situations like uh, like uh, Silverstone, where the track is really really bumpy, uh, causing real problems. Um, but they obviously they obviously found the, the, the well they they found something the proverbial something which um, all race teams seem to have in the garage but never be able to and seem to be able to locate uh, whenever they actually need it um, and you know they pull it together um, uh, again it was a great podium Pekka Banyaya rode brilliantly um, again on the Mahindra um, Bo Ben Snyder uh, Ben Snyder is really really interesting uh, Ben Snyder is uh, obviously living in Holland I know a little bit more about Ben Snyder I've spoken to him a couple of times over the weekend and um, he was he says he, he changed basically he's changed his tra uh, training re regime he's got a new trainer he's changed things a, a little bit at home and uh, he did that over the summer break and since then that's really that, that that's really changed his approach and you're seeing it in his in his results uh, at the start of the season the goal was to be you know sort of regular top 10 uh, now he basically he, 
he said to me after the race, you know, we, we, you saw this weekend, if you aim to be in the top 10, then a podium is always on the cards because uh, because the front of it is, um, uh, the, the, the front of the race is so close. And he also said one thing which I found interesting. Um, uh, obviously, he's tall. He's taller than me. He's about, uh, what is it, 182 or 1 meter 82, which is, you know, 6 foot 1, something like that, 6'2". And um, he, that actually helped him with the with the wind uh, not in a straight line he was suffering but actually through the corners um, because he had a little bit more weight on the bike and a little bit more leverage over the bike because of his, uh, his height he could actually do he could actually uh, be a little bit more stable uh, through the corners and that was that's that was where he was going that was where he was gaining he was managing to pass people where people were not expecting him to be able to pass because he could keep his he could control his bike better through the chicane and stuff it looked like there was a lot of passing going on as you know I don't see the whole race on TV like you do. I just see them when they come around for each lap. But I was trying to think of a Moto3 race where we had more bikes on the final lap that were grouped up as a pack, you know, in an earlier race. Neil, you pr can probably tell me if that has happened this season or not. Um, Mugello, I think, was one um, where you maybe had upwards in the region of 12 bikes. I'm not sure exactly how many it was, but yeah, you're right. Silverstone, like, you know, the race on Sunday was was definitely one of the, in terms of the the size of the, the, the leading group, um, was certainly one of the biggest we've seen this year, for sure. It, uh, I remember, was it Bruno last year or the year before, where there was maybe 15 riders uh, across, the same, uh, across the line at the same time, and was it, uh, who was it thought, who thought he'd won that race and got it wrong? Rinse. Rinse. Ah, yeah, there you go. Yes, there you go. That was, um, uh, uh, again, 15. That's the great thing about, uh, about Moto3, when uh, conditions can uh, really affect it and really bunch all of the riders up together and then it just becomes it becomes real real racecraft yeah um for for me i think that uh, the most impressive thing about ben schneider is just what we've seen time and time again from io riders in the past whether it's binder Oliveira, johan zarko whoever you want to pick as your example is just how much that team does to get riders to be able to be at their best dave you mentioned that their bench Schneider's changed his training regime over the win over the summer and that's allowed him to get a bit more out of himself for the second half of the season. But I think it's also one of those things where the team do a great job of showing riders maybe the, the best path to take and uh, then to motivate them really well and get the most from them. And that's in stark contrast to what we've seen from teams like VR46, who have you know the same machinery, uh, a lot of, lot of manpower there, a lot of resources, whether it's from sponsorship money, like there's huge amounts of money available to the VR46 team but we've seen them cast aside Bagnaya in the past we've seen Fanati now um, being fired from the team and it, it certainly looks like when you talk to riders that IO is a situation where you're able to get the most from yourself but it's impossible to look at the VR46 operation and not see that uh, that is there to be a racing team that's there solely to win races and you've got to fit a certain mould to be able to work within that team. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, it was interesting. I spoke to Peter Bomb, Danny Kent's crew chief, and he said that uh, Danny actually struggled a little bit inside uh, IO's 
um, uh, setup inside the IO team because Aki IO has a very, very, uh, he's a disciplinarian. He's very strict. He's also very, very hard on his riders. Um, uh, that can work with a particular kind of personality. Uh, doesn't work so well with with with, with other personalities. Um, so I think uh, you know clearly works works. Binder Binder is a you know he, he's self motivated. He's very very critical of himself. Uh, ben Snyder is also um, uh, critical of himself. He's used to being the he's used to being. He's used to receiving criticism, picking it up and using it, using it, and 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 that's what's allowing him to be successful. Uh, I think the path that um, Ben Snyder took is also very interesting because he did do the um, uh, Red Bull Rookies and the Spanish Championship or the FIM CEV Junior Worlds Championship um, uh, in parallel. You left Repsol out of that uh, as well, Dave. Well, one day well, I've, the. Uh, the reps hall was uh, was silent. Um, the but, but I mean the, the the thing is it's two completely different disciplines. But they 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 teach very uh, they both teach very important lessons. First, the Red Bull rookies teach you learn a lot about uh, about racecraft, about being a uh, about being a professional racer in the sense that um, uh, you learn about media engagements, you learn about how to be how to behave yourself, you learn how to uh, uh, behave with the paddock. You're also get exposure to the paddock you get to see uh, how um, the motor gp riders uh, conduct themselves but what you don't learn is very much about bike setup you don't learn um, about being part of a team because you have one ktm mechanic and uh, and one co one uh, companion and your companion is usually your dad whereas you if you go and race in the civ the italian championship or the cev um, then you uh, are part of a team you will have two or three mechanics you'll have a crew chief and when you come into the um when you come into the garage you sit down and all of a sudden there is a, as a 15 or 16 year old you've got a bunch of grown men staring at you intently hanging on your every word which can be incredibly intimidating uh for for a you know for a young 15 or 16 year old um and i think that that's but it's in, it's really important that you learn to give feedback that you learn to speak your mind that you learn to say this is what's happening with the bike um and also you learn to listen to your crew chief who will tell you okay well if that's what's happening with the bike this is what we can do to try and fix it but then you'll if we do this here then you'll lose then you'll lose that there um um uh, i also know that ben snyder for for example the the, the dutch federation the KNMV, they work with um, uh, the former 250 racer uh, and also 500 racer ba uh, Barry Veneman. And uh, Veneman works a lot on uh, looking after the riders, also coaching them, uh, teaching them, um, uh, making sure that they train properly, making sure that they prepare themselves properly, uh, helping them to understand what what it what it takes to succeed at this level in um, uh, in Grand Prix. And you see that it works with some riders. It's clearly worked really really well with um, uh, with Ben Snyder. It didn't work so well with Scott Deru because Scott Deru was simply too distracted and didn't uh, uh, wasn't prepared to take the kind of advice that uh, that Feynman was was handing out even though he went through the same path so it's it's interesting to see how some riders succeed and 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 others fail given the same uh, coaching and approach just a quick mention for while 
Ricard uh, in the Moto3 race, Stefano Manzi, uh, a kid that really didn't show a great deal um, in his year in the Moto3 class last year. I think he was with the uh, the, the, FIM, uh, the FIM Italia junior team uh, on a Mahindra and he wasn't really didn't really didn't really show much that whole time um it's a name that we kind of know from the red bull rookies in the past um he was given a wild card uh for this weekend and you know was right up in among the, the kind of the sharp end of that uh, leading group and, and was fantastic was looked as though he was about to lose the front end of his mahindra on every single occasion that he was breaking into stow and veil and you know all the heavy heavy breaking points on the silverstone track um, but for him to come in as a wild card um, and just kind of out of the blue, really, um, finish in fourth, and I think he qualified somewhere like, you know, um, outside the top 20. Um, he actually qualified 34th. I think 34th yeah. or yeah. something yeah. like that. 34th, yeah. yeah. For him to come through all the way and get the, you know, just be off the podium, I thought that was uh, that was, that was was sensational. And also another, just a quick mention of Jorge Navarro, who's just seems to be a guy that can't catch catch a break at all um you know ever since he broke his leg after he won in, in barcelona his season's just been uh, just been terrible he was knocked off in in Mugello. uh he crashed when he was you know hunting down the leading group in austria um you know he's had a really rotten run and again he, he i think he qualified on in 16th or 18th made his way through to the front group and you know through free practice and qualifying or sorry through free practice was you know in the dry the fastest guy by, by quite some distance, but um, but just hasn't really been able to make it work for him. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, to an extent, um, I mean, Brad Bender has been just outstanding all year, but he's he's certainly been helped by having his uh, rivals removed. Uh, Navarro has managed to take himself out. He's also had managed to have uh, other people take him out. Uh, again, Manzi rode brilliantly, but he did sort of get in Navarro's way just enough for Navarro to crash out and, 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 and not score any points. Um, so it was just, uh, yeah, everything is everything seems to be going perfectly for Binder. He's now 80, let me just check, 86 points ahead. That's a massive, massive gap uh, with um, uh, with six races left. Um, uh, and it... it I mean, it's not that he uh, that he's that he's incapable. Uh, Navarro is clearly Navarro is clearly clearly talented. He's clearly capable of of winning races and of being in the championship, but he just can't catch a break. Um, and all the luck seems to be over in the Red Bull uh, garage on on Binder's side. Yeah, and what's interesting about uh, Binder is if you remember, Dave, we went down to talk to him on Saturday, I think it was. And uh, I asked him, you know, whether or not the fact that uh, Jack Miller and Danny Kent had both been able to open up big championship leads at one point in time and then were reined in by their rivals. I think even if you look back to last year, I think Kent had about a 70 point lead after Silverstone. And uh, Binder was, you know, he was he was calm about that question being asked. And he just said, like, he's just focusing on winning races. And I think that's where the difference between what we saw in the past and what we're seeing now at Binder is, I think that it's very easy for riders to get themselves sucked into just thinking about wrapping up the title. Whereas I think Binder looks like he's very comfortable where he is. He's got a lot more experience than most of the rest of the field, a lot of confidence in the team, and he's just looking just to, to pick up a, another couple of race wins and then the championship will take care of itself. Yeah, and he also doesn't have the distraction of a uh, of a contract because he knows what he's going to be doing next year, even though he can't actually announce it. Um, we all know he's going to be with uh, basically taking Zarco's seat in the um, uh, in the IMO2 team, riding the KTM, I think. Um, but um, still a few details to, to, to finalise, but that's just one less thing 
thing for him to think about. All he has to think about is every weekend. But he does, it, as you say, uh, Steve, you do need that uh, calmness, that uh, confidence and that focus just to think about this weekend. Um, Casey always used to say, Casey Stone always used to say, if you win, if you can win races, the championship will take care of itself. Um, and that's, that's, that's very much the case for, uh, for, for Binder this year. Anything else? Okay, that's it for this Paddock Pass podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Dave, Neil, and Steve. You guys said everything I was going to say and a lot more. Interesting listening to you. Uh, if you like the podcast, please uh, find us on Twitter at Paddock Pass Pod, on Facebook at Paddock Pass Podcast. And uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, please give us a like uh, so that other people can find us. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Super duper chaps. Champion. Champion. Good stuff, boys. And Scott, you found out just how difficult it is to say a paddock pass podcast. It's really very challenging. Yeah. Try and get David to say it, though. What? Paddock pass podcast? Three, t- three times, Dave, as fast as you can. As fast as I can. What if I can only speak really slowly and can say paddock pass podcast? I'm still asking you to say it three times in a row. <laughs> what? Paddock Pass Podcast. Paddock Pass Podcast. Paddock Pass Podcast. Oh, and, Dave. And by the way, You've come Steve, such a long way. Fuck you. You've come <laughs> such a long way, David. <laughs> I remember this time last year, Dave, if we had have asked you to say Paddock Pass or podcast, you would have just broken down in a state of tears. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've been practicing. You see, I've been practicing. I've been trying to get better. I'm in. Uh, I'm in training every time before I go to bed. I say paddock pass podcast a thousand times, forwards and backwards. I say Rosha must love that. <laughs> <laughs> that really gets her in the mood. That's right. It's all right with well, the bruises heal after a point. Yeah, yeah. I think I think an hour is 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 usually optimum time. Yeah, exactly. So you what, Neil? An hour. An hour. An hour. An hour. Have I, I shown you the wrong times? Have I shown you my peg leg? Sorry, I recorded just before we started, Scott, and it says. So, magic. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Ooh. Uh, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Eggs in the morning. PC oh. McLaren. Follow us on Facebook. Paddock Pass Pod. Is that what it is on Facebook? Penis no, no, no. It's Paddock Pass Podcast. Penis Pass Podcast. What is that? Penis Pass Podcast. Penis oh. Pass Podcast. That would be a very different podcast. Let's do that at the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>